Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, Pastor Tony Evans, who I'm going to quote a couple of times uh, in this morning's message, I'll talk more about him in a few moments, but he tells a story of a guy who visited his nutritionist and he said, I need some help changing my diet. Nutritionist said, okay, well, tell me more. He says, well, every time I go by a grocery store, I find myself wanting to eat dog food. He says, when I walk in, I just feel drawn to the pet food aisle in the dog food section in particular. And when I'm there, I just find myself staring at the pictures on the dog food bags and thinking about how much fun it would be to play with those dogs and to be one of those dogs. And then I'll just rip open one of the bags and eat a scoop of the dog food. And he says, sometimes I get so excited, I bark and I howl and I lay in my back and I try to get people walking by to scratch my belly. The nutritionist is taking all this in and he says, well, sir, that doesn't sound like a dietary challenge. Uh, How long have you been like this? And the man thinks for a moment and he goes, well, ever since I was a puppy. (laughs) I think that story is from a few years ago. um, And and now it just sounds like a video from the dark corners of TikTok. You know, I don't know if, um, but, but this story, I'm bringing up this story at the beginning of this sermon. Um, because it speaks to identity. This man's confused about who he is, right? And it's just a funny story. I'm sure it's not a real story. But we're going to be talking a lot this morning about identity, and I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about what it means that we have been justified or made right by grace through faith. This is the, the key idea through the book of Romans. And this has everything to do with our new identity in Christ. And so much of our behavior comes from knowing who we are. And I love the songs we sang this morning because so many of them were speaking, that, especially that last song, I am a child of God. This is an identity statement that we sang over and over again together this morning. Knowing who we are, knowing what Christ has done for us is key. And I am pumped about getting to this section of Romans We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 the next couple of weeks. I think we've got two weeks in Romans chapter 7. Then we're going to be diving into Romans 8, where we're going to spend, I think, three weeks together. And this is really the heartbeat of the book of Romans. This is all about how do we live now that we know what is true about us. If we have been made right, justified by grace, it's a gift, through faith, that's trusting in God. This is our spiritual reality. This is what Jesus has done for us. And everything we've been talking about from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 5, this is our ninth week studying the book of Romans. Everything is leading up to the next few weeks where we're talking about Romans 6, 7, and 8. It is the heartbeat of the book of Romans because it turns the mirror back upon ourselves and we begin to think, how do we live these truths out? These are incredible, amazing, life-changing truths. So now what? Now that we've heard this, now that we know our reality, this is a spiritual reality that speaks to our identity, which then affects our behavior. So how do we live as justified people? Last week's message, we talked about how Jesus went back to the very beginning. He, He was striving to put right what once went wrong, He reversed the curse of death and sin from all the way at the very beginning of humanity's story. And today we get to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 14, but I need to back up a little bit and read how Romans chapter 5 closes out, because there's a question that comes up at the beginning of Romans 6 
that makes sense if we have the end of Romans 5 fresh in our minds. So I'm going to open up here to Romans chapter 5. Thank you, Ribbon Bookmark, for finding my place there so I don't have to flip my way through it. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. This is how we ended um, our reading of the text last week. Now then, or now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to have this idea in your head as we jump into chapter 6 now. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We, We talked about this last Sunday, this idea that Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. And remembering that now, as we begin to read uh, Romans chapter 6, there's a question. If we really understand what Paul is saying about God's grace, this should be the question that you might think of. If sin increases, God's grace is far more abundantly above what, what is needed for that sin. God's grace abounded all the more. So now, Romans 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I remember uh, a preaching professor, or a a professor of mine at Bible college years ago, uh, talk about I was going through the book of Romans in a class in Bible college, and he, he said that if we um, teach grace the way Paul taught grace, people are going to ask the kind of questions that Romans 6 opens up with. If grace is so abundant, grace is so amazing, well, maybe we should sin more. Should we sin more so that there'll be more grace in the world? If God's grace is way more than our sin, then what do we do about our sin? We, if we really understand our situation, right, our best efforts fall short but Jesus makes us righteous. If that's true, why and how are people going to do the right thing? If they can't earn their way into God's presence, right? In fact, maybe it's demotivating to tell people this. 
If we want people to do the right thing and be good people, maybe it's a demotivator to tell them that God's righteousness covers all of our sins. Why should someone do the right thing if God's grace covers all of our sin? Right? More, more sin equals more grace. Grace is a good thing. So maybe there's some kind of loophole here. We can, we can kind of figure out, just do whatever you feel like at any given moment because God's grace will cover it. You know, no. Paul says pretty resoundingly, um, no, right? He says it, and I think that's what the original Greek translates to. Um, he's, we need to understand here that how the seriousness and the cost of sin, and we'll talk more about this next Sunday, that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Sin is a destructive power that we don't mess with, right? Sin is a real thing. But we also need to, to understand God's grace and the transforming nature of God's grace, uh, Grigory Rasputin was a, uh, the, they called him the mad monk in Russia the, around the turn of the century, early 1900s. The Russia used to have a royal family, right, the Tsar and his family, and, and the Russian Revolution, the whole royal family was executed as the Russian Revolution took place and communism became um, the way that, that society lived in, in, in uh, the Soviet Union. But before this, Rasputin had kind of earned his way into the, the halls of power, so to speak. He'd become influential in Russia. And he was this person that had very strange beliefs. Uh, he, had, he had trained for a little while in a you know, Russian Orthodox monastery. He was kind of on this path towards becoming a monk, but he eventually left that and just became a spiritual teacher in really loose terms, kind of a spiritual leader. People believed he had magical powers. And he had this influence in the Russian royal family. But one of his beliefs, apparently at this time was that he believed this idea that sin brings you closer to God's grace or brings more of God's grace into this world. And so you should just sin in any and every way and then ask God for his cleansing power and his grace to cover up those sins because more sin equals more grace. More grace is a good thing. This is a complete distortion of what Paul is teaching, but Rasputin's not the only person through the history of Christianity who's who's brought these kind of ideas and tried to play this um, sort of lifestyle out. If God forgives and God loves forgiving, let's give him more to forgive. Right? This is deciding ahead of time to take advantage of the grace of God, and this does not match a real understanding of what Jesus has done for us. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound, is how our passage opens up. And Paul says... By no means. Other translations say, may it never be. And again, I think this is his way of saying the strongest terms possible, no way. Right? How can we, he brings up this question right after that question. He says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in that? How can we, how can we continue in a pattern of, of sin? Right? Paul's getting to this idea that Christians should not be okay with the idea of sin in their life. Don't, don't wave the white flag and say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and I'm not even going to attempt to deal with the sin issues or the sin patterns that I struggle with. He says, this, if you think that way, it does not match your reality. It does not match your new identity. It does not match what Jesus has done for you on the cross. We will struggle with sin on this side of heaven. But we should view it as a struggle, not something we just surrender to. And I think Paul's especially concerned about patterns of sin, just kind of living in this state of 
rebellion against God in some area of our life. And now on the other side of this, right, that some Christian circles have taught that it is possible to live a sin-free life this side of heaven. That God will do such a transforming work in your life that you will be completely sanctified. Some people will use that, that idea on this side of heaven and then you can progress through the rest of your life in a sinless condition. And I don't think the Bible supports this. Romans 6, 7, and 8 don't support that idea either. Uh, Pastor Ray Stedman, who's, I, there's a number of resources I use each week as I'm preparing these messages, and Ray Stedman was a pastor back in the 60s and 70s in Southern California, and he taught on this passage, and I like to read his sermons um, to hear what, how he taught this. And I came across this story where he talks about this idea. Uh, he says, some years ago, I was working in the city of Pasadena, and I went to get a haircut. I soon found that the barber was a Christian. As we began to discuss some things, he started to tell me about his Christianity. He told me that 17 years before, he had been sanctified, as he put it, and he was no longer able to sin. For 17 years, he had lived without sin. He made it very clear that he had no sin at all. So I began to discuss this with him, his pastor in his barber chair. And he says, I brought in certain other Bible passages, and we got into kind of an argument. And the longer we went, the hotter he got, all the while he was cutting my hair. He worked himself up into a lather, just as angry as he could be. I finally said to him, look, if you can get so upset, so angry when you have no sin in you, what would you be like if you were a sinner like the rest of us? He said, it was two weeks before I dared to appear in public after that haircut. (laughs) Change is possible in the Christian life. this, This new reality, new identity versus the old reality, old identity. Change is possible. How, though? Right? How do we deal with anger and pride and lust and greed and the sins that plague us on this side of eternity. I want to give you three words that show up in our passage this morning that will be the framework for the rest of our time together this morning. And it's these three words, know, K-N-O-W, right? consider, and present. Know, consider, and present. We need to know, Paul tells us. He says, do you not know, in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. There's something that we need to know. There's a truth about our identity, about our reality that we must know. And it's that our old self was crucified with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. This is true of any who are followers of Christ, any who have received God's gift of salvation, justification by grace through faith. If you've received that, this is something you need to know. And you need to know it because you don't always feel it. This is something you need to keep in your mind because you don't always just feel this at any given time. This is something your mind has to help you with. Know this reality. And this has everything to do with our identity. It says we have been united to Christ. 
by justification, right, through grace, by grace through faith. We are united with him. We are bonded with him in this special way. This is the practical aspect of our justification is that we are in Christ. That is our identity. So when Christ died on the cross for us, we died with him. Our old man passed away with him. And when he was risen from the grave, our new identity, who we are, rose with him. We're raised to life in Christ. And you need to know this because you don't always feel it. There's a wonderful book I've quoted before in past messages uh, called Atomic Habits by James Clear. This is not a Christian book. This would be in the self-help section of the library or the bookstore. But it's all about the idea, how to, how to change your behavior, how to form new habits, how to break old habits. And he, it's a deep dive into this concept of habit formation. And one of the things he talks about in the Bible, in this book, is something that I can affirm as a Christian. Because he talks about the power of identity-based habit formation. If you're trying to break bad behavior and form good behavior, identity is a very important piece of the puzzle. He talks about this in his book and talks about this in an article online uh, related to the book. But he says, the key to building lasting habits is focusing on creating a new identity first. Your current behaviors are simply a reflection of your current identity. What you do now is a mirror image of the type of person you believe that you are, either consciously or subconsciously. To change your behavior for good, you need to start believing new things about yourself. You need to build identity-based habits. He talks about there's different levels of change. There's outcome-based habits. There's another one in the middle that I forgot. And then there's identity right at the core of this. But he says the outcome-based habits are where we typically tend to, to, to be. We say we want to do these certain things. I want these outcomes in my life. And that's a good thing to do. I want to, like if we're look, talking about this as followers of Christ, I want to spend time in God's word. I want to share my faith with people who don't know what I believe or who need to hear the gospel. That's an outcome-based thing, and, and those are good things. But he says we have to start further in to our identity. And he says this level of change is concerned with changing your beliefs, your worldview, your self-image, your judgments about yourself and others. Most of the beliefs, assumptions, and biases you hold are associated with this level, identity change. And this is what Paul's talking about way before James Clear ever writes his book on Atomic Habits. You need to know who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you. What, what happened that day on the cross? What happened on that Easter Sunday? You are, you are united to that. You are in that. That is our reality as followers of Christ. He uses an example in his book of someone trying to quit smoking and, and they're offered a cigarette. And there's two different approaches that someone could take to this scenario. One is that I am trying to quit. That is an outcome-based behavior change versus I am not a smoker, which is identity-based. That's not who I am anymore. One is like I'm trying not to do this thing. I used to do it, but I'm trying not to anymore. One is that's not me anymore. It's a change in identity. Paul brings up this idea of baptism in this passage, and he, he speaks about 
Um, he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He, he brings out this idea of baptism, and I think he's talking about baptism in a spiritual sense here, in which the physical act of baptism is an illustration of this spiritual dynamic that we've been baptized by his spirit into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. We're buried in, in, so that we might walk in newness of life as we are raised up as well. We have a baptism service coming up in just three weeks, as Craig mentioned um, a little while ago. And when I talk about baptism, we have a flyer out there that describes baptism, what we believe about baptism, just some kind of practical information about baptism. And I would love to talk with any of you, by the way, that are interested in getting baptized, but maybe you have questions about what's involved in that. But once a year, we go down to the river and we have a baptism service and the church family gathers around people and friends and family of the people getting baptized. They're there to witness this. And there's three things that I talk about when I talk about baptism. One is that being baptized is simply obedience to one of Christ's commands. To be baptized in the water is, a, is, a, is obedience. This comes from the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this is part of just obedience. We're just saying, Jesus, you want me to be baptized? Uh, you said if you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus' love language is obedience. And because we love him, we want to obey him. And so we say, yes, you told me to do this, I'm going to do it. The second aspect of this is it's a public declaration of faith. For many Christians, the average Christian, this is the most public they will ever be with their faith. They'll stand in front of their community. They'll stand in front of the people gathered there, and they'll say, I am identifying myself as a follower of Jesus by being submerged into the water and coming back up out of the water. This saying, I'm, I'm, I'm identifying myself with Jesus. I am his follower. But the third aspect of it comes from what we've just been reading. It's a, it's a reenactment of our spiritual reality. We, we are, as we are lowered into the water, it is like the part of us that we died to our old identity. And as we are raised out of the water, it's like we are raised to walk in newness of life. And it's a picture, a very tangible, visual, physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And again, I'd love to talk to anybody of you about baptism. There are forms out there to fill out to say you're interested in being baptized. I've heard from a number of you already. It's going to be a wonderful celebration on August 6th. And it's not quite as cold as Craig was lead, leading you to believe. You know, it's not too bad. It's chilly, but it's not that bad. That's why we're doing it on August 6th instead of the end of August. Because sometimes the end of August, we have a weird cold Sunday every now and then. So we moved it up a little bit earlier in the year. So the first word I told you was no, right? What was the second word? Consider. You remembered. Thank you. That makes me feel really good. Uh, other translations will use the word reckon. And I want to reread this verse where we got this idea from. It says, verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Listen, it's one thing to know something. 
But it's another thing to consider it at, at, as true today. Like this is true today. I know it in my head, but considering it, I think, is a heart thing. We, we, I really know this to be true. I'm considering myself. I am, the other translations say, reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to God. We remember that the part of us that was a slave to sin is actually dead. And then we live out of that reality. I mentioned I would bring up the name Tony Evans again. He's a wonderful pastor who wrote a book called Free at Last, where he does a deep dive into these concepts in Romans 6. It's a great book. Um, I, rec- I recommend that. But he talks about in, uh, in, in a sermon, I think, based on this book, he was talking about the idea of the sin factory being shut down. We are no longer slaves to sin. At one point before Jesus was in your life, you were actually a slave to sin. You were living under the dominion of sin. Paul talked a lot about that in the book of Romans in our study so far. You went from being like no choice but to sin because you're a slave to sin to being in Christ now where you have been set free from slavery to sin. And if that's true, then why do we still sin? Well, if the sin factory is shut down, that doesn't mean that the stuff the factory produced is not still in circulation. And he uses this illustration. He says, if General Motors closed all their factories down tomorrow, would the world still feel the effects of General Motors? Yes. Right? There are a lot of Chryslers and Chevrolets and GMC vehicles out there on the roads, and they will continue out there on the roads. And when they break down, the parts that are still in circulation will be used to repair those cars, and the effects of General Motors will continue for quite some time, even if General Motors factories shut down. There's a similar dynamic going on in our flesh, in our body, that just because that we are no longer slaves to sin, there's all the effects of sin, there's the patterns that we've learned. There's, Paul will talk a great deal about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. That's Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 are going to do a deep dive into this concept. But there's this old nature that even though it is dead, we sometimes submit ourselves to this old nature. The patterns we've learned, the practices, the habits that need changing are still a reality. And so there is a battle. There is a battle that we face between the flesh and the spirit, between our old nature and our new nature. That third word is the word present. We need to know, we need to consider, and then we need to present, which is a very physical kind of word. And I'll reread that portion as well. Verses 12 to the end here, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members or your body, different parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There's this part of us that has been, has been put to dead, death but still lives, right? It's the, the flesh that we will battle. It's one of three enemies of our soul that Christians have talked about through history, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the physical side of us that still wants to sin, even though we don't have to anymore. It's like this zombie-like situation, right? 
where it's this walking around and, and wants to do the wrong thing, and it's, it needs to be dealt with. And the way we deal with it is an everyday process. Paul says, present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And I think that's a daily thing. I think that's something we do every day. We recognize that we are in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and against our flesh and against our, this, all of this dynamic that we face. We find ourselves in the middle of a war still, spiritually. Tony Evans describes the difference between D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge. If you know World War II history a little bit, on D-Day, June 1944, the Allied forces approached the beaches of Normandy and this force of military power stormed the beach under intense gunfire and, and all of this going on. These brave men faced this battle and invaded Europe. And from that moment forward, that marked the turning point, the victory began of World War II, but there were many battles to come. On D-Day, one of the most inspiring stories I remember is from the, uh, the Army Rangers scaling the cliffs at Pointe du Hoc. I'm sure I didn't say that right, I don't speak French. But it was this place, 110-foot tall cliff, where Army Rangers scaled this cliff to take out these gun placements that the Germans had up there. And, and many of them were wounded, many of them died, and they took back this place so that the forces could invade in Normandy, and they began to sweep across Europe. But there was a huge battle that took place that next winter called the Battle of the Bulge, and it was Hitler's last stand. And it was in this forested area, um, I believe it's in Belgium, um, today where the, the Third Reich, you know, Hitler's army, began to assemble all of these forces to push back the Allied lines. And there was a huge battle with thousands and thousands of casualties. So the Allies started off greatly outnumbered at first, and then eventually reinforcements came in, and they were able to win that battle. And then later, um, a few months later, it was VE Day, victory in, in Europe. I bring all this whole story up to say that we're, we're kind of like that between D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge in our Christian life. Um, that we are, that the, the, the victory is guaranteed because D-Day has happened, right? Christ has declared victory on the cross. Christ has done this great work for us. He has conquered the enemies of sin and death on the cross. But we find ourselves still on the battlefield for the rest of our days on this side of heaven. We need to fight. And the way that we fight is by thinking in this certain way, knowing certain things, considering certain things to be true, and then presenting ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness instead of instruments of unrighteousness. I appreciate that Paul brings out the physical aspect of this. He says, our bodies, right, our, 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 the physical side of us. Your body's always involved in, when you sin, it's always physical in some way. Even if it's in your mind or anger towards somebody, it's your, your body is involved in every act of sin that you commit. And we need to submit our bodies to Jesus as instruments of righteousness. I saw this week 47 youth and adults serving this week at camp. And it was inspiring to see the way everybody pulled together and everybody worked hard. And guess what? They used their bodies as instruments of righteousness this week. 
they uh, lost sleep, you know, they didn't sleep well, you're not sleeping in your own bed, or you're staying up late dealing with some problem in a cabin or whatever, you're dealing with the heat, that's a very physical thing, chasing down campers, giving hugs, that's a physical thing, spending time playing with a, with a camper, throwing a frisbee, talking with them, I mean, very physical actions where people were using their bodies as, as instruments of righteousness to love these campers in the name of Jesus and share the gospel with them and encourage them and help them deal with some of the pain that they walked into camp bearing on their shoulders. And again, I think this idea of presenting yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness is a regular thing that we need to do. This is a not a one-and-done thing. Our justification, that's a one-and-done thing. Jesus, in a moment, declares us righteous. We receive his grace through our faith. But I think presenting ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, keeping our identity in mind, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, that, that is a regular thing. We present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. One final quote of Tony Evans this morning. He talks about in, in this book, um, Free at Last, He says, in the morning when you get up, declare, I am crucified with Christ. I confess that every morning. I want to be like Paul who said, I die daily. Just a quick funeral. I'm dead, the old me is gone, and the life I now live this day is the life of Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the reasons why we encourage and talk about um, so much about spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices in, in your life. I think this is one of the key ingredients to helping you live your life in a way that matches your new identity. And we talk about three kind of core disciplines, prayer, Bible, and church. And I think each one of these core disciplines will help remind you of who you are and will help you present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. You need times in your life where you're reminded of what is most true about you, about who you are now, and who God is now, who God always will be. I want you to think about your role in all of this and God's role in all of this in helping you live the Christian life in a way that glorifies God. God's role in your living the Christian life is huge, God purchased salvation for you. He set you free from the dominion of sin. He raised you up with Christ to newness of life, gave you his Holy Spirit to to help you bear fruit for him and to live a life in a way that glorifies him. Our role, on the other hand, is pretty small in comparison to all that, but it's essential. Right? We, we are the people who remember who we are, remember what God has done for us, and present ourselves to him as instruments of righteousness. God is not going to operate you like a puppet. Right? God's not going to just make you obey him. Right? We're not robots, but God is calling us to present ourselves to him and say, I willingly submit to you. I remember who I am. I, I consider myself dead to sin and alive to Christ, and I'm going to live for you today. And then tomorrow we wake up and we do it again. I'm going to live for you today. Old me is gone. I'm raised to newness of life. I'm going to live for you 
present my body to you as an instrument for righteousness. Jesus called his followers to take up their cross daily. Right, The thing that you would die upon during his time, that was a very visual image that his followers would have seen. Someone walking to their execution. And they would see, later see him take up his own cross. But this is this idea that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The uh, life application Bible that my wife um, had as, as a teenager, and I used this in my sermon preparation as well, it had a wonderful note in the study notes for this passage. And it says this, the Holy Spirit will help us become in our daily experience what Christ has declared us to be. So the Holy Spirit and, and your submission to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life will help you become who you already are. The good news of justification by grace through faith is that in a moment we are declared righteous, as righteous as Christ, but that doesn't mean that we are living that out yet. We need to know, we need to consider, we need to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, this, become who you are. Become who you are. May may the way you live your daily life match your eternal reality. May the way you live your life reflect what is most true about you. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this. Lord Jesus, um, these are life-changing truths if we'll let them. If we'll let them change us, these can change us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help, help us, Lord, to live out of this reality. I appreciate so much these great words of wisdom and truth that Paul recorded, Lord, with your inspiration about who we are, our identity change, and considering ourselves dead to sin, and presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness. And Lord, not to say that any of this is easy. Lord, we have enemies, we have the the world, the flesh, and the devil that are constantly pulling us, drawing us away from what we know to be true. And so Lord, I pray that you use moments like this as we lift up our voices in worship and as we hear from your word to remind us of what is real about us. And Lord, then help us to live that out. And Lord, I'm, I'm... always conscious of when we gather that I know that we're not guaranteed that everybody in the room is, is, has received this gift yet or everybody watching online. But you are faithful um, to, to just throw the doors of invitation wide open to any who would come to you. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet to receive this incredible gift of grace, receive that gift of salvation, Lord, you'd help them right now to put their faith in you and to begin to walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you would just fill them with all the hope and the peace and the, Lord, this idea of a fresh start and being a new creation, that they would experience that firsthand in a very powerful and real way. You are so good and gracious to offer that to us. And so, Lord, all of us who are your followers already or any new followers in the room, help us to become who we are. May we live our lives in a way that reflects our reality and our new identity. You are so good. You are so faithful. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for all you've done in our lives. Help us to live our lives in a way that glorifies you, in a way that reflects what you've done for us. 
We praise you. We thank you. And now we want to offer up our worship to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.